This past week, I saw a clip on social media. It was of a pastor who was, uh, had, he had gone to the guitar center, and uh, he had said that he came across a teenager, a 13-year-old kid who was trying to play one of the, one of the chords from, uh, from some sort of, I think, a Rolling Stones uh, music or something like that. And he said, I regularly go in there and hear these kids trying to, uh, trying to be like these big performers. And he said, you know, it'd be really foolish to judge the Rolling Stones based on the, based on the attempts of a 13-year-old guitarist. Like, oh man, if that's the kind of music the Rolling Stones put out, that is, that is pathetic. He said it would be, it would not only be foolish, it'd be unfair. And it would be unwise to judge the quality of and worth of a master performer by someone who is simply learning and regularly failing to be like them. And then this pastor went on to explain to his church that this is exactly what people often do to God. They'll see the hypocritical actions of a Christian or they'll have a poor experience with the church and then turn that around and judge the worth and the value of God. It would be just as unfair and unwise to assume that because God has broken imagers, broken children and followers, that somehow he is broken. And yet we know people regularly turn from God and from the gathering of his people, assuming that God himself is just like all these hypocrites. But what we find, I really believe what we find, is that even when I think I'm done with God, and when others think God is done with them, the truth is, God's not done with me. He continues to pursue, pursue the whole world, including rebellious sinners, to show who he is, to show his love to them, his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. It's the, it's the pursuit of the perfect of the imperfect. That's who God is, and that's how he wants to be known, but not just to us. As believers, he wants to be known in that way to the outsiders, to those outside the covenant family, so that they'll be given an invitation to come into the family. We're starting in Exodus chapter 7 today, and a part of me wants to go really slow as we come through these like fast-moving, actionable parts in, in Exodus, but uh, last Sunday at our deacons meeting, I was told by Trenton Clark that Pastor, if you keep going at the same pace, we're not going to get out of Exodus until 2025. So pick it up. So here's what I'll tell you. We're not going to stop and examine all the incredible treasures that God has for us. We're just going to bypass them. We're just, we're just going to ignore them and keep walking as fast as we can. And we're not going to stop and look at all the incredible things that God has in store for us because somebody's in a hurry. But I, I will try to go... Last week, we finished chapter number six. In chapter number six, we saw Yahweh's incredible speech where he says, I am Yahweh. This is, this is who I am. And he said, this is my purpose. I want to be your God. He says, if you'll let me be, if you'll let me be your God, if you will be my people, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land of promise. And so Moses took this incredible speech and he ran to the people and said, This is what Yahweh said. And they said, We don't want any part of this. We saw last week it was because of their brokenness. 
they had rejected Yahweh. And rejected Moses as well to the point where Moses went back to Yahweh and said, Listen, I've already told you I'm not the guy for this. That's where we're picking up in chapter number 7 today. The first seven verses that we'll get to, if you've been with us from the beginning of our our journey through Exodus, these will all sound like echoes. And I hope that that they seem familiar to you because we've been trying to stay on the theme of echoes. But really, these seven verses are setting us up for the first really true showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, which is really simply a showdown between the God of Israel and God's people. Exodus chapter 7, verse number 1. Now, if you're brand new with us, every time we see the name Lord in capital letters, we know that's his personal name, Yahweh, so we're using that. Verse 1, and Yahweh said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now just real briefly to explain this, God was not telling Moses that he would become a God with power, but he would become like God with position. So it's like Yahweh would tell Moses, and what Moses was supposed to do was tell Pharaoh, so God is telling the prophet what to say to the person, but Moses refused. He said, I'm not going to do that, so God inserted Aaron. So it's Yahweh to Moses, Moses to Aaron, Aaron to Pharaoh. So he's saying you're going to become, in Pharaoh's mind, you're going to become the person who's telling Aaron what to say. So you're going to be like a god. Verse 3 says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So can I just pause right here? We are going to talk about what it means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We're just not going to do it today, but we will talk about what does that mean. It says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And then this becomes very key to the text, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spake, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Can I ask you a question? You know how we've we've seen Moses push back on God a number of times since chapter 3? What has Moses' pushback on God primarily been? My mouth, right? Never one time does he say, hey, I'm too old for this. That to me is the far better reason to say no than to say, well, my mouth. But this is exactly what, what Moses says. And here's, here's what, when I came through that as I was studying, I thought, you know what? I really hope that those of you that are, that are reaching what you would consider an older age, that no one else considers you old, but you might consider yourself at an older age, I really hope that you don't start thinking, I'm becoming less valuable to God. Whoa. Don't ever let that. There are probably some of you who aren't able to do physically the things that you used to be able to do. Maybe you can't go down the playground slide anymore or climb across the monkey bars. 
but God has places and purpose for his people. Ever since we came back from COVID, I have been working on Wednesday nights with our children's ministry. I love it. But you know what I really, really love? Watching Dave and Judy Guzzi come in and sit with, most of the time, with kids who have ridden on Wednesday nights in a van. They sit at a round table with them, and here's Dave, just calm and collective Dave. Never gets upset about anything. There's like six young men, I I would call them challenging young men, that have grown to love Dave Guzzi. You know why? You know, if you know Judy, you know her sweet smile just never stops, right? And she comes every Wednesday evening, and she gets up from the table and goes, and when those kids walk in, they come and they see you up and give her a hug, and she's just little. All she does is approach I'm, I'm guessing that Dave and Judy probably in some ways may have ministered in, in more physical ways when they were younger, possibly. Giving their life to these children who, more than they need someone to ride a slide with them, they need someone to faithfully be there every week and say, I love you. That's what they're doing. That's what God is giving each of you opportunity The way I see these first seven verses, Moses is preparing Israel for an echo to come long after Moses is gone. We're going to get to that in a second. I want want to reread the next set of verses, this encounter between Moses and Pharaoh. I know it's going to be familiar to many of you. I'm going to point out when we get done, I'm going to point out a couple things that I hope that you take notice of the next time you read through it. Verse number 8, Exodus chapter 7, verse number 8. It says, then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. So a couple things I, I want to just try to pull out here. Okay. First, and, and some of you are like, yes, I, I got this. I want to make sure you notice this. Did you notice that Pharaoh is the one who asked for a sign? That's important where we're going. Moses and Aaron didn't just walk, barge into the throne room, throw their staff down, and it becomes a serpent. He lived in a land of many gods, and he wanted to know these two men who are coming at me on behalf of another god, are they worthy to listen to? Show me a sign. And they did. With an act of power. 
Second, did you notice that it was not Moses' staff that turned into a serpent? I think sometimes we have in our mind that, you know, at the burning bush, Moses' staff turned into a serpent. And here, Moses, that wasn't Moses' staff that turned into a serpent. It was Aaron's staff. Third, did you notice that the magicians were able to turn dead sticks into living creatures? That's interesting to me. We're not talking just about Yahweh, the creator of the world, is able to take something dead and make it alive. Now we're seeing magicians, sorcerers, taking a dead stick and giving it life. Boy, that's unique. How are they able to do that? Get there in a little bit. Fourth, you wouldn't know this reading from the English text, so I'm telling you something that you would not know. But I want to point out, the author of Exodus uses a different Hebrew word for serpent in this passage than he does when Moses' staff turns into a serpent. When Moses' staff at the burning bush turns into a serpent, that Hebrew word is every time it's used in the Bible, it is, it is translated as serpent, meaning snake. In this passage, when Aaron's rod is thrown on the ground... It's not using the same word. The author uses a different word. And do you know who the author of Exodus is? Moses. So he's going to know. The, the Hebrew word used here, when it's translated in Scripture all but one time, is a sea serpent. What kind of a reptile comes out of the water? Think of the Nile River in kind of a reptile would be coming out of that water and what we what we cannot confirm but what we really can likely say is that thing didn't just turn into a snake it likely turned into something like a crocodile that's a difference huh and last thing i want you to notice before we get into the message aaron's staff or his followed up Serpents of Egypt. What in the world is that all about? Now, this this throne room scene would not make sense without a little bit of cultural background. But here's here's the truth I want you to understand. Yahweh is sending Moses and Aaron into enemy territory to provoke the head of the troops. You remember in the Gulf War when the soldiers, uh, sorry, when the soldiers invaded Iraq and the citizens came out and they began to tear down statues. This large statue uh, of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad was brought down to the ground. And you know why? What was being said was a, this is a clear signal to Saddam Hussein. Your reign of terror is over. And here's what is so cool. That is exactly what Moses and Aaron were sent to do. Send this message to Pharaoh. Your reign of terror is done. How in the world do you get that, Pastor? Well, every Pharaoh's coffin is going to have a couple of specific things. But one, they will always have a staff in their hand. I know you can't see it real well. But his arms are crossed. He's holding a staff in his hand. That staff is of power. And there's always a serpent on the crown. 
staff and the serpent are symbols of power and authority. So think of what happens when Aaron walks in and Pharaoh says, are you really worth listening to? Aaron takes a staff, the symbol of Pharaoh's power, and he says, watch this. And he throws the symbol to the ground and it crashes to the ground. That is an affront to Pharaoh whose staff is but that staff doesn't just crumble away. It turns into a sea serpent, the very symbol of Pharaoh's power. Boy, so now we have the staff and we have the serpent there, but it came from the hand of this Hebrew slave. And so Pharaoh calls his magicians in and he says, come, come. And he watches as they are able to do the same thing. And, and so likely sitting back with his arms crossed, like he didn't prove anything. My guys can do the same thing. Your guys can. Oh, man. Yours just ate ours up. And if Pharaoh had a sense of what Yahweh was doing, he was sending his people in, his generals in to say, it's time for war, and before it gets started, we want you to know it's already over. What's so interesting about this word swallowed up when it says that Aaron's staff or sea serpent swallowed up the others is there's only one other time in this Exodus narrative when we find the word swallowed. And it's after they have gone through the Red Sea and Miriam, who's Moses' sister, she's leading the children of Israel in this great celebration. And she says this, you, Yahweh, you stretched out. You, oh, man, remember that hand. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them up. So Pharaoh asks for this demonstration, and basically Moses and Aaron put on a play that shows, let's just talk about what's about to happen to you. Your staff will fall, your serpent will be defeated, and your people will be swallowed up. Two things, just two things I want to pull from these verses. Number one, that Yahweh desires the world. Yahweh desires for the world to know him. So back in verse 4, if you remember, back in verse 4, Pharaoh, he heard the instructions from the prophet, but the Bible says he refused to listen. When he refused to listen, judgment came. We'll know those judgment as the acts of God, the ten what we call plagues. But what was the purpose of those plagues? Was it punishment? Was it retaliation? Well, you remember what we read? Can I go back there briefly? Chapter 7, verse 4 said, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand. Remember, this is a big echo of the hand. I will lay my hand on Egypt to bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Bring out the people of Israel. Purpose of the ten plagues was not to punish. The purpose of the ten plagues was to reveal. This is who I am. I mean, you think of it, God could have acted in any way that he wanted to. Do you remember, like, one of the plagues was Darkness. Why not just give three weeks of darkness to the Egyptians while the Israelites walked away? 
Why not just go straight to the last, the last plague where Pharaoh finally said, just get out of here, just go, I don't want you here anymore. Why not just skip right to the death of the firstborn? Because God was not bringing punishment against the Egyptians simply to punish them. He was bringing acts of judgment so that they would become to know him. And this reality becomes a huge echo as the nation of Israel moves forward. Because the very people that God delivered from Egypt and he brought them to the promised land began to ignore Yahweh and would close their ears to the prophets he was sending to them. Israel would become God had already revealed himself to Israel. Here he's revealing himself to the Egyptians. But see, God had already, if I can take you back one chapter, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, Yahweh had said, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Yahweh tried to use his blessings, his very presence. I've come to you. I will deliver you. I will carry you. That was how Yahweh wanted to reveal himself to his people. And yet when he revealed himself to his people and took them to the land that he had promised to them, they began to turn their back on him, to ignore him, and to eventually stop their ears from listening to his prophets. And so what does Yahweh have to do? Ah, I've got to reintroduce myself to you. And how does he do that to people who don't listen? He sends acts of judgment. Assyria, Nineveh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar come rushing into the nation of Israel and Judah, those 12 tribes. Because Yahweh wants his people to know, even the rebellious people, who he is. Those who knew God had become just like those who never knew God. For that should wake us up. Knowing that Israel saw God's presence and his blessings and his, his deliverance, and yet their hearts could grow to the place where they simply ignore him, and stop listening to him? Huh. I think that should lead us to examine our own hearts. And ask this question. As we recognize God's presence, as we experience God's salvation, and as we enjoy God's kingdom blessings through King Jesus, have we also begun dismissing Jesus' teachings and desires for his people? Have we become, as believers, have we become like unbelievers? Jesus came to reveal God. He came to deliver his people. He came to bring them to a place of promise. But I think there's many who simply would just say, we've forgotten him we're not even listening to him you say well how would i know i think it's very very simple how do you respond to his voice his word and his spirit when the lord speaks to you how do you respond so over the past couple of weeks you know this if you've been here if you haven't forgive me but 
we've all witnessed the, the homosexual and the transgender agenda that is being pushed both nationally through company like Target. We've seen it in our own little town through now more than one drag show coming to, to this area. And we quit believers. We get up in arms about, about the way that people aren't living according to this word. But, but can we just pause a moment and can we flip this word towards ourselves and allow it to be a mirror to our own hearts? We probably don't have anybody attending a public drag show in this by how many are secretly viewing pornography. It, are we saying that a heterosexual sin is just not as bad as a homosexual sin? We might call out gay pride. Do we ignore the very pride that's in our own hearts that we just feel free to just point out to people without pointing out our own We may not be selling or purchasing LGBTQ clothing to push an agenda, but are we giving of our, of our resources to the work of the Lord? The transgender crowd may say, I can do what I want to with my body. And I don't agree with that. I don't. But how different is that from a, from a believer saying, I can do what I want with my time, my money, my life. I mean, Jesus has given us this, these, these directives to care for the poor, to house the homeless, to gather with believers, to make disciples. We know those instructions just as clearly as we would say, hey, God's made them male and female. But have we turned deaf ears to the instructions of God in similar ways to unbelief? How would an who lives for himself, be drawn to the value of our God when his followers live for themselves too. Wouldn't we make Jesus far more appealing by living differently from the world and following him as he calls us wherever he wants and whenever he wants and to whomever he wants? Like, isn't that how people see Jesus as glorious? When we, we joyfully and obediently follow the king, we want, because I'm ready to Doesn't that move your heart when, when we had our youth pastor who stood in front of us and he, he's leaving everything that, that he knows and he says, I am going to tell people in a country I've never been to with a language I cannot speak but I believe our Jesus is so worthy, I will abandon all that I know to go where he wants me to go so that people who don't know him can hear about him. Oh, I don't know about you, but when I listen to Micah talk about going to Poland, there is just a conviction in my heart that I'm just like, do I love Jesus that much? I'll tell you this. Yahweh wants the whole world to know. 
Yahweh desires his people. Recognize their true identity. I want you to think with me for a moment. We said this was a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. Is Moses the real hero of Israel? Is Moses the one who is going to redeem and save Israel? Moses and Aaron? No, no, no. Who's the hero? Who's the one who truly delivers? Well, we know that's that's Yahweh, right? So if we were to compare that then to the Egyptians, is Pharaoh the enemy of Israel? Are those magicians who were somehow able to turn a dead staff into a living creature, are they the enemies of Israel? Or, or could we, should we look for a deeper and greater force or source behind these magicians, behind Pharaoh? Here's what I would contend. It was the true serpent. The true serpent who is set on destroying the seed, the children of Israel. Knowing that from this group is going to come the one who will one day crush my head. And so if I can end it all right now, I don't have to worry about the seed of woman promised in Genesis 3.15 rising up to one day crush my head. Which is why we have to see this is more than a showdown between a human Moses and a human Pharaoh. This is a Yahweh and a divine enemy. This has to help us then understand the reality of who we are truly fighting against. In, the, in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul tells a group of believers, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you can stand against the schemes of, of the people around you, against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but we do wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and over spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places paul was reminding believers that we and we need to be reminded today the true enemies that we have are not flesh and blood people they are the Spiritual rulers and authorities and powers, and we can't even see them. We don't have to run scared of them. I want you to understand that. We don't have to run scared of them. In, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So these, so these heavenly forces, they must bow a knee to our king. We have to be scared of them. And he also says, I'm going to give you armor to withstand them. So here's the reality. Hot water. CEO of Target, not your enemy. I'm telling you. The people who are going to show up in this town next weekend dressed in drag, those people are not our enemies. Now, now, the force behind them sure is. But the restaurant owner is not my enemy. The power of darkness behind them does not fight flesh and blood. We're fighting a spiritual war 
forgive me, forgive me, but, but let me just say this. I believe it, and you can challenge me on it, and I probably need to be challenged on this, and it's okay for you to challenge me on this. I'm telling you, please do so. If you think I'm wrong, you please do so. Tell me, but I'm going to tell you my opinion for just a moment. We're fighting a battle that we are not going to win with boycotts or protests or emails. Didn't we boycott Target a few years ago when they let men use the girls' bathrooms? Then why are we boycotting them again? See, the CEO of, of Target didn't backtrack on pulling those pride displays down because Americans were up in arms saying, we're not going to shop at Target. And suddenly he realized, oh my, oh, what an immoral thing I have done. Oh, I am, I am sinning against the very God of heaven and his word. He didn't have that reaction. Do you know why the gay pride stuff was pulled down? Because they were losing money and he is called to make money. That's his job. Bud Light, they stopped sponsoring a transgender woman because they were losing money, not, not because all of a sudden they got morals. The world around us is decaying, church. And it's, it's important for us to stand strong on the word, but it's more important for us to fulfill the directive that was given to us by our king that will change the culture, and that is simple. Make disciples of Jesus. When we have a CEO over Target who is a disciple of Jesus, we're not fighting gay pride places. Uh, demonstrate what, what you call this one? displays. There we go. Sorry. Well, when we have when we have disciples of Jesus owning restaurants and campgrounds in this town, we're not fighting drag shows. The reason why the culture of our nation, of our town, and of our world is going to hell is because Christians love to gather on Sunday mornings and sing to Jesus and don't make disciples the rest of the week. Our weapons of warfare are not our credit cards and our bank accounts. I'm not going to go, and I'm going to show them. For how, let's just, like, can I just, man, myself in trouble here. Can I, can I ask you, if Walmart here in town were to start doing the same thing, is everybody all of a sudden going to say, no, I'm not going to Walmart. I'm going to drive 50 minutes to the grocery store. Are we going to start saying that? Change is not to say, I won't shop there. That's not going to bring change. It may temporarily, but it's not going to change morals. It's not going to change hearts. We need heart change. We need character change. We need a Christian value system to become adopted in this world that is set against Christ. And that's not happening. Because we go to war. Ah, ah, and here's the thing. We don't throw our staff down and We throw our staff down. Holy prayer. And a staff of holy obedience. And a staff of an obedient person who's saying, I am doing this because this is what my king has told me to do. And we throw a staff, and that's how things change. Not through our power, not through our resolve, but through his. 
really, why are we shocked when sinners promote sin? If people want nothing to do with Jesus, if they want nothing to do with gathering with believers, if they want nothing to do with the Holy Bible, if they do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of them, if they are completely devoid of any kind of spiritual influence, why would we expect them to be like us? Sinners are going to sin. Christians need to make disciples. Our world I think here's here's I think here's I really think what happened. God sent his men in to say, it's over, pal. See this serpent? Boom, it's done. And I love it because Carmen Imes, she's a brilliant Hebrew scholar, she was saying that she's recently found that, that they used to set up statues of pharaohs all over Egypt, and there were three things included with every pharaoh: a staff, as we mentioned, a serpent on their head, and a name on their belt. The name was the last thing to go on to this statue. Once the statue had a name on it, it supposedly was filled with mystical powers. People could ask that statue to, to perform magic for them. I'm telling you, this is, this is what she found. And they would decommission a statue, meaning if a pharaoh's reign was over or if he, had to, if he had to move on, they would decommission it by either breaking off the pharaoh's nose on the statue or breaking off the serpent from his crown. There was no serpent on his crown. He had lost his power. I think that's what this guy said. Or we're, we're through Yahweh with telling Pharaoh. Our nation has rejected God. We refuse to listen to the voices he sent. How does God get the attention of people who no longer listen to him? His believers want to see God change or not change. And I tell you, condemnation. There was a, a pastor, and I remember him telling me this story. That a woman came to him and said, Pastor, my, my husband is unsaved. Will you pray for my husband to become saved. And he walked her down the aisle, and they knelt at the altar, and, and, and he began praying with her and said, and, and said, Lord, send, 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 oh man, what, what word did he use? Send tragedy. He said, send tragedy to this home. Lord, whatever that tragedy looks like, send tragedy to this home. So this man, and she stopped him, and she said, I'm not asking for tragedy. I want my husband to be That preacher looked at her and said, I, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. It sounds like you want your husband to be saved. It sounds like you want him right now. Because you really want your husband to be saved, and you'd be willing to allow the Lord to do anything. Hey, church, I guess we probably need to examine our own hearts. Do, do we want, want a more comfortable nation? want God to bring revival, it starts with us. Here I am. Whatever you need. Jesus came for the world to see what God was like and to know it. 
about Jesus this week. I'll pray in just a moment. But I pray, Pastor Mike, for our offering. Not fighting questions. I, ha- I have to remind myself of this. Satan is a 